when I was a teenager, I, uh, I was involved quite heavily in a movement, a musical movement called the straight edge scene. Are you looking at me blankly? Does anyone, <laughs> does anyone in here, it's a long shot, isn't it? Does anyone in here have any idea what the straight edge scene is? Adam Jones does at the back, of course he does, and James Briggs does, that's perfect. The straight edge scene, so I'll give some context, shall I? I'll clarify. The straight edge scene was a, um, a musical scene that, uh, that arose out of the US in the 1980s, particularly the East Coast, Washington DC. And it was a group of hardcore punk bands who were basically pushing back against the, the, uh, the over-the-top lifestyle of punk musicians at that time. They said, you know, we're all about the music, man. We don't need to throw TVs out of windows. We don't need to, I don't know, sniff aeroplane glue or whatever it was punks were doing at that time. So, to be, so the straight edge um, movement formed, particularly around a band called Minor Threat. It's the plug, no one, no, again, blankly staring at me. <laughs> I'd love it if someone would just say, hey, Minor Threat, yeah. <laughs> and and the, the idea, what it, what it meant to be straight edge was that uh, you, you didn't smoke, you didn't drink, you didn't take drugs, and you didn't engage in promiscuous sex. I mean, that's a gray area, if I've ever heard one. But, you did, but these were things that you, you abstained from doing, all of these things. And then the kind of the final mark of recognition is that you would draw, if we can get that slide up, two X's on your hands like this. So not just you, but everyone else knew that you were straight edge. Now, going back to the early 2000s, this, uh, this American phenomena hit the UK, Kent hardcore scene, and there I was um, as, as a 12, 13-year-old lad engaged in this straight-edge movement. And this was in the days of MySpace. Come on now, somebody. And this was in the days of MySpace. So the George White standing in front of you now, in the MySpace days, I was not George, ladies and gentlemen. I was X, George, X. I used to sign off messages, love you, man, George, X-Core, because I was straight edge. And I'd go to all the straight edge gigs, and all my friends, we would draw, before we went to school, we would draw X's on our hands, and we would go to the gigs, and we would sort of stand there like this, so everyone could see, like this. And that was, that was my childhood. <laughs> but what was so fascinating about, um, about the straight edge kind of movement, and, and really like Johnny was saying last week with Marie Kondo, is, is that this movement actually betrays something quite interesting in culture. There's a movement against the punk rock scene that actually says that the excessiveness, the excessiveness, the limitlessness of a particular lifestyle actually doesn't help us to flourish. You know, like Johnny was saying last week, that we get the, I can do what I want, when I want, whenever I want, with who I want, actually doesn't lead to flourishing. And you find even, even kind of in the... In, in the non-church world, this group of people who push against it because fulfillment isn't found there. And we know, actually, interesting, I was reading an off-ed piece uh, yesterday, and apparently the straight-edge movement is coming back, so you'll all have a chance to participate in it. Apparently, it's coming back to the UK, and now it's going to be centered around a plant-based diet. So there you go. But straight-edge straight edge is coming back. Straight-edge is coming back. <laughs> but it's, it's founded upon this idea, it's founded upon this principle that actually to flourish, there's something within us, even in culture, we know that to flourish, we actually do need limitation. 
to flourish. We can't just do whatever we want, whenever we want, with, who we, with whoever we want. We need boundaries. We need limitation. We know this physically. We have to put limits around the kind of food we eat. That one cuts particularly close to the bone. We know this emotionally. We know we can't just work all the time. We know we can't give ourselves, we, we can't become workaholics, just, just, just hour, zero-hour contracts. But we need to put in boundaries where we rest, where we spend time with deep spiritual friends, and where we rest and spend time with family. We need balance to be emotionally well. And we need this spiritually as well. Really, what we're, what we're doing in Lent, in some ways, is, is, to, is to limit ourselves from consuming some of the things that we consume every day. For me, Netflix, YouTube, Amazon Prime, BBC iPlayer, Four on Demand, you name it, all of them have gone, and it's killing me. But, <laughs> but the idea is that we limit ourselves from these things because actually in that we find more flourishing, we become more awake to the movement of God in our lives. We become more aware of the people around us. We see the beauty in things that otherwise we just pass by in everyday life. We flourish when we're given limitation. You know, the... Um, a comedian called Pete Holmes was talking about this in regards to Google. And he was saying that Google has basically ruined our lives. Because it used to be that when you didn't know something, you kind of had this ache within you of not knowing it. You know, he says, you know, his, his thing was, you know, you'd wake up one morning and be like, oh, I wonder where Tom Petty was born. And you wouldn't know. And no one could tell you when you had to read a book. Or you had to go to a gig and find a Heartbreakers fan and, and ask him where Tom Petty was born. And you would carry this deficit in your being for weeks. And then one day, someone would tell you that Tom Petty is from Florida. And he says, that's how you meet your wife. But he says the problem now is that whenever we don't know something, we get our smartphone out. We chuck it into Google. And within 1.657 seconds, we have tens of millions of results. We know the answer instantly. And we're not a lick smarter for it. The point he makes is that the, the time between not knowing something and knowing it is so brief that knowing something now feels exactly like not knowing. We're no smarter for it. The irony is that when we, uh, when we give ourselves over to excess, our experiences of life are actually dulled. I remember um, being a kid one Christmas and... and uh, Sneaking in, but it's probably a week before Christmas, and there was this particular, there was this present I'd been shaking and keeping my eye on, and I, and I remember opening this present up, and my my mum was furious. She went big on Christmas, but I remember opening this present, and all I wanted to do was experience it then and there. But then I got to Christmas, and it dulled the whole thing for me, because my pre main present had been unwrapped. Does that make sense? The irony is that when we when we when we give ourselves over to excess. We actually dull the experiences we have. And the Christian word for this, the Christian word for this kind of limitation is chastity. Now, when I say the word chastity, there's probably a few of you who the following images come to mind. There we have the classic Sister Act 2, a chastity belt, and a, and a monk. You know, you may think of chastity... Like I often do, and really, it's just, it's all about sex. Put on your chastity belt. Or you think about chastity, and it's just synonymous with celibacy, this idea that you're never having sex, never being married, all this kind of thing. But chastity itself, the concept of chastity is so much deeper. 
Chastity is the limitation that we're called into so that we might experience life fully. This is uh, what Ronald Rollheiser says about chastity, and it'll come up on the slide. He says, chastity is, first of all, not primarily a sexual concept. It has to do with the limits and appropriateness of all experiencing, the sexual included. To be chaste means to experience things, all things, respectfully, and to drink them in only when we are ready for them. We break chastity when we experience anything irreverently or prematurely. Irreverence and prematurity are what violate chastity. Say that bit again. Irreverence and prematurity are what violate chastity. Chastity is about becoming awake. All of us are limited as human beings. And we find that when we, when, we, when we exceed those limitations, when we try and stretch those limitations, when we constantly are in a pursuit of doing what we want, when we want, we actually find that our experience of life is lessened. We find that we flourish less. We find that we become less human. Limitation is being able to notice God, being able to become aware of God. And that's what I want to look at today when we look at the second temptation of Jesus. Because the second temptation of Jesus really is about Jesus making a scene. Jesus being spectacular. Jesus using all of his limitlessness in this amazing moment to be the Messiah that everyone wants him to be. And yet we find that Jesus limits himself. The story of the gospel is a God who limits himself to become one of us so that we might know him. So are we ready for the second temptation? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So why don't we read it again? Second temptation of Jesus. So then the devil took him to the holy city. This is verse 5, chapter 4 of Matthew. And set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So last week, Johnny was looking at the temptation, the first temptation of Jesus, where the devil comes to him. Jesus fasted for 40 days. He's hungry, obviously. And, and the devil says to him, we'll make this stone bread if you are the son of God. And last week, Jesus said that the first temptation primarily is about the devil Te- uh, about the devil, rather, sorry, questioning Jesus' identity and Jesus' purpose. If you are the Son of God, prove yourself. If you really believe God's real, prove yourself. If you're a Christian and you think this is worth your life, prove it. The first temptation is all around Jesus' identity, and this second one runs in the same vein, doesn't it? devil takes him to the holy city and sets on the pinnacle and says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Throw yourself down because if you're the Messiah, as you're falling, angels will be sent from heaven and the angels will catch you and they'll bear you up and there may be like some kind of chariot and some kind of, I don't know, maybe flaming loop that you go through as well. But whatever happens, it'll be sensational. It'll be, it'll be, uh, I was going to say American. (laughs) It'll be big. It'll be exciting. It'll be entertaining. Jesus, the devil takes Jesus to the highest point of the temple. The place where he could be seen by 
Everyone. This is in Jerusalem, the holy city. This is what it's referring to. And Jesus stood on the edge of this pinnacle. And the temptation, really the subtext of this temptation is, Jesus, prove who you are by doing something spectacular. But it goes beyond that, doesn't it? Because the temptation is slightly deeper. It's not just prove your power. It's actually shortcut your mission. Jesus is on the pinnacle of the temple in the holy city of Jerusalem. You can imagine him looking down and you've got Pharisees coming in and out doing their duties. This bit, you've got Sadducees, you've got scribes, religious leaders, you've got officials, masses of people. If you're the Messiah, Jesus, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you jump off the pinnacle of this temple so everyone can see exactly who you are? All the religious leaders can see you borne up by angels. All of the scribes and Sadducees can see God reach out his hand and grab you before you fall. There would be no question that you were the Messiah. You see, what's so interesting is that the devil's mistake is that just like Johnny said last week, he gets... Jesus' identity, completely wrong. It's the same thing the Pharisees and the Sadducees get wrong all the way through the Gospels. If you're the Messiah, surely you should look like the conquering king. If you're the Messiah, surely it should look spectacular. If you're the Messiah, it should look entertaining and supernatural. And Jesus just says, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. Why? Why? Because Jesus knows that his limitation pushes him towards a plan that is so much deeper and so much greater and so much more transformative. Jesus' way is not the way of Trump. Jesus' way is the way of the cross. The irony in all of this is that that Jesus' power is shown in the fact that he limits himself. Only a God who is truly great can become man. Only a God who is truly great can, can engineer this journey of salvation where everyone for all of history, for the rest of history, for all of time, can be free in Jesus. Where he can make all things new. Jump off the temple, make a scene. No. Jesus chooses the path of limitation. And he's already done this, hasn't he? Does it ever surprise you that if anyone could rush into into Christian ministry, it would be Jesus? And yet he still waits till he's 30. Limitation has already been part of his story. The limitation of God becoming man in Mary's womb. The limitation of God becoming subservient to the people around him by being a child, by growing up, by not starting his ministry at 12, 13, 14, 15. If anyone could rush, I'd think Jesus. If anyone had an argument for, you know, I want to go into this young, I want to do my thing, it would be Jesus. And yet, we read after the story we see in Luke where Jesus is brought back from the temple by his mum. 18 years before the next episode. Jesus lives a life of limitation because the plan is limitless. The temptation that the devil poses to Jesus is this. 
Why not jump off this pinnacle? Why not jump off this temple and use all of your power to your advantage? And yet Jesus uses all of his power to our advantage. He comes in the form of a servant, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, but considering it nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being found in human likeness. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus' power is manifested not in that he can make a spectacle of himself, but that he can give himself for others. God gives all his power away for our benefit and for our advantage. I uh, love steak. Bringing it back up again. Okay, there we go. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I was thinking about this, and I, I, I may end on this. I may end on this. So that's, oh, by the way, that's all I really want to say today. <laughs> that's it. That is it. The, the second temptation I want to think about today, that I, that I want us to think about today, is the temptation to rush, the temptation to make a spectacle, to rush ahead of God, rather than to realise that what God wants to do in us is always far more in the process than it is in the destination. I really mean that. It's not just a tweetable quote. It's always far more in the process than it is in the destination. I love steak. John loves steak. Come here. Yes. The most expensive steak in the world is a Japanese steak called Japanese Wagyu. Anyone? Wagyu? Wagyu? Yes, Darren. Yes, brilliant. And this steak is so expensive because it is aged for 400 days. I mean, you might go into a pub and, you're, you know, and you think it's impressive when they say 28-day-aged steak. This is 400 days, over a year. And the idea is that, to some of you, that might sound gross, by the way. <laughs> oh, you're just eating rotting cow by that point. <laughs> no, you're not. Trust me. There's a process to it all. It's all very tasty, I promise. But, but this steak is aged for 400 days. And the point of the aging process, especially when something's dry-aged, is that actually the steak becomes restricted. It becomes limited. It actually shrinks by about 30%. Are you guys with me? Are you interested in this? <laughs> Vegetarians in the room have, have lost. Um, but it shrinks by about 30%. But in this limiting... It, the, the, the fat runs into every part of the meat and it becomes the most flavoursome thing that you can ever imagine. So that when you cut this steak, you take one bite and it's got more flavour than a week of steaks that you'd buy from Aldi. The flavour is so condensed and so concentrated because of the process that it's been in. And I think that we're kind of like steak. That's the journey that God wants to take us on, not to, not to, not to rush ahead, but so that when we do reach this destination, there's a flavor, and there's a work that God's done in us by his spirit, and there is a love, and there is a kindness, and there's a faithfulness that can't come through any other way, that can't come through the spectacular, that can't come through the sensational, but comes through the sensational, but comes through one foot in front of the other in servant obedience for the long game. And what is the long game? The long game is everything made New. The long game is everyone knowing Jesus. The long game is everyone coming into relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The end game is this city alive, changed, transformed, renewed, recreated, restored, revived. That's the end game. All of us, are, that's all I've got. All of us attempted to shortcut. All of us attempted to rush the process. Jesus takes all of his power 
and uses it to become limited so that his work might be limitless. Tweet that somebody, come on now. <laughs> and that's what we remember at communion. That is exactly what we remember at communion, that, that, Jesus, that Jesus promises, he gives himself, he commits himself to being present in bread and in wine, not in the spectacular, not in the lights and the show and the smoke screen, but in bread and wine, in flesh and blood. Amen. Amen.